Welcome everyone once again to Yesterday Today. I am your host for this particular episode. Uh, my uh, The title, I should say, by which you may uh, uh, verbally refer to me, uh, not in writing, only verbally, is William Beauregard Huckster IV, uh, known uh, as uh, Willie, Slick Willie to those who... Uh, Willie. Uh, y- yes, go ahead. Uh, I just want to let the audience know. So, hey folks, this is uh, Jake and McLean from Yesterday Today. Uh, Slick Willie is, he's hosting the show this week. It, it should be fine. I, I, we did a background check on him and nothing came up. Yeah, there were there were zero search results. There, nothing came up. The thing you need to know about uh, these background checks is they only work if you've got access to somebody's, uh, uh, well... Uh, false name. See, the name that was attributed to you upon your supposed birth date in a uh, supposed just, state just, of these uh, united whatever, localities. Okay, whatever name you were christened by when you uh, set sail on your maiden voyage will work. Oh boy, I can't wait to tell you about voyages. You see, folks, uh, Jake lost the rights to host this episode uh, to Willie in a game of craps. And now we're stuck with this. Yeah, it was not my best round of craps I've ever played. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I don't want to talk about it, alright? It well, just, don't it was worry, bad. I've... Daddy needed a new pair of shoes, I got sandals. Now, I've got a means by which you can get your, uh, your financials back in order if you'd like to hear about it. You just introduced the theme of the show for now, Willie, thanks. Alright, alright, alright. But you better know I'm gonna bend your ear with tales of, of riches oh, I believe later. you. I, I believe you, Willie, I, I believe you. My friends out there, the theme of today's show has to do with those uniformed fraudsters stalking our streets. Streets publicly funded by money stolen from you in the form of what they call taxes. Those uniformed thugs, the police. That is the theme of today's show. And our first show, Dragnet. Anything y'all want to say about Dragnet, boys? Uh, yeah, classic police procedural kind of define the genre. Um, real quick though, Willie, uh, do you have a, what's your beef with police? Am I, am I missing something? Well, see, I, I, don't get me wrong. I, I respect the police, but it is the, it is the entity which so uniformed them and embadged them and then uh, proceeded to have them enforce the so-called laws. That's where I have my problems. Well, anyway, this is Dragnet, starring Jack Webb as Joe Friday. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. detective sergeant. You've been off duty two hours. You receive an emergency call from the chief of detectives. An entire block in the heart of your city is threatened with complete destruction. Your job, report at once. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. 
It was Tuesday, November 15th. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were off duty reporting in on an emergency call. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 8.32 a.m. when I walked in the Spring Street entrance of the city hall. You Sergeant Friday? Yeah, that's right. Uh, take my elevator, Sergeant. It's the only one in service. All right. I'll run you up to 16. The chief's waiting for you up there. What's the pitch? Only one elevator in service out of 10? The place looks deserted. What's going on? Nobody in the building. All the office people have been sent home. Lots of trouble. Somebody declare a holiday? No joke, Sergeant. Big trouble. All right, you convinced me. What is it? Here we are. 16th floor. Over here, Friday. Hi, Joe. Hello, Ben. You made good time. Came as soon as I got the call, Ed. Sorry to have to bring you back in. You worked last night, didn't you? Yeah, midnight to eight this morning. Sorry. Come on. Okay. What is it, Skipper? Why all the hush? Wait till we get inside. In here. Okay. Number one, let's keep our voices down. Yeah, all right. I'll make it as brief as I can. Every minute counts. What time you got, Friday? 8.33. All right, here it is. 55 minutes ago, a man walked into this building with a homemade bomb under his arm. If we don't release his brother from the county jail by 9 o'clock this morning, he says he'll pull the trigger on the bomb and blow up the whole building. He's kidding, Skipper. Who is the guy? Name's Vernon Carney. Here's his package. He and his brother have been in and out of jail since 1937. Small-time thieves. Yeah. Where's the FBI kickback? We had him once before, both of them. Brother's name is Elwood, serving a year for a car stripping. And this two-bit thief is sitting here in the city hall with a bomb on his lap? That's right. In the next room. What kind of a bomb is it, Ed? You think he's bluffing? Could be bluffing, but the crime lab says no. Lee Jones from the lab get a look at? Been in there twice. One end of the box is glass. Says you can't see much without a closer look, but you can't get near the guy. What do you want us to do? It's a volunteer job. You can take it or leave it. I won't order you to do it. How you want to handle it? You sure you want a piece of this one, Romero? No, he doesn't, Ed. He's got a family. Get me another single man. We'll give it a try. Wait a minute, Joe. What makes this do- this job so different? Anytime we kick a door in, we never know what's on the other side. That's what makes it different. This time we do. No, you're not going to cut me out. Not the only time I know what I'm getting into. All right. Chandler's tried. Hannon, Davis, Watson, they've all tried. This guy, Connie, knows what he's doing. He's no pushover. But somebody's got to get that bomb away from him. Friday, Romero, it's your baby now. I looked at my watch. It was 8.36. We left Backstrand and started down the hall. If Carney was going to make good his threat to blow up the building by 9 o'clock, we had exactly 24 minutes to talk him out of it. Ben and I figured we'd better look him over first and then work out some kind of a plan. Maybe just talking to him would do it. Vernon Carney was sitting in a straight-back chair against the far wall facing the door. He was seated between two windows that looked out over the city. Along the left wall was a row of six wooden chairs. In the center of the right wall was a connecting door leading to the office where Backstrand had briefed us. The door was locked on both sides. Just off center and favoring the left of the room was a small filing table. The other furniture in the office was a desk just forward of the connecting door on the right. There was a dictaphone on the desk. In the near left corner, shielded by a white screen, was a small wash basin. The faucet leaked. Vernon Carney was middle-aged. He sat erect, holding a black box on his lap. He held his right hand inside one end of the box. Ben and I stood there for a minute and looked at him. Then we walked in the room. What do you say to a man with a bomb? That's close enough. Cigarette, Carney? I'm not smoking right now. 
What are you trying to prove? You know what I want. We're not going to let your brother out of jail. You got until nine o'clock to change your mind. According to that clock on the wall, you got 24 minutes. If we go, you're going with us, Carney. Don't take much of a brain to figure that, copper. What made you think you could get away with this? Haven't yet. It ain't nine o'clock. Unless that clock's slow. Haven't checked it against my pocket watch lately. That's the one that's running this show. Have you given any thought to all the innocent people that are going to go up with that thing of yours there? My brother's innocent. I want him out of jail. The court says he's guilty. He'll get out when he serves his time. That's where you're wrong, copper. He gets out at nine o'clock this morning. All right, come on, Carney. Get your hand out of that box. Put the box on the table. You think I'm bluffing, don't you? I'm going to let you get within five feet before I make a liar out of you. Okay, Kearney. I guess you mean business. You can take three more steps and find out for sure. Suppose we did let your brother out. We'd just come out and pick him up again, you along with him? If you could find us. Let's get this straight. If we let your brother Elwood out, how do we know you're going to keep your promise? What promise? I ain't made any promises. You just get Elwood down here first, and then we'll talk about it. There's only one thing I can't figure, Carney. Yeah, what's that? If we don't let your brother out, you say you'll pull the trigger on that bomb. You're going to kill a lot of innocent people. What are you going to prove by that? It's 8.37. You've got 23 minutes left. Now, I wish you'd answer that one for me. Why do you want to kill a lot of innocent people? Don't try to con me, copper. I know they cleared everybody out of this building 45 minutes ago. I know they cleaned out the whole block. They got it roped off. Where'd you get your information? I got a couple of windows here to look out of. Don't you think it's about time to send somebody over to get Elwood? You know, Carney, we've got a way out of this. We don't have to let your brother out, neither. I've heard that before. What's to stop us from leaving the building along with the other few officers and let you sit here and touch off that bomb? Go ahead. It won't be a long wait without you. Who are you trying to kid? You'd let me blow up $10 million worth of taxpayers' money? (laughs) Ah, no. You're going to let Elwood out. You'll wait till the last minute to do it. But you'll let him out. Ed, I'm still not convinced Carney can back up what he says. Then why didn't you take the box away from him? Yeah. We're in a spot, let's face it. How about an eye for an eye, Skipper? What do you mean? If he pulls the trigger on that machine, he kills us. How about us getting him first? All right, Romero. How are you going to handle it? I'm not top man on the pistol range, but I could wing him. And then he hands the box to you? Or maybe he falls and his reflex action pulls the trigger. Okay, I don't wing him. I stop him for keeps. You just can't walk in there and shoot him down. Why not? You do the same thing with armed criminals. Yeah, but you warn him first. I warn him. Yeah, and after you shoot him, you find out it's a harmless gadget. Couldn't have gone off in a million years. No, no, a gun's not the answer. We can't shoot him until we're positive. We'll be positive by 9 o'clock, and there might not be anybody around to shoot him. We've located Carney's apartment. There's a detail out there checking it now. Pacelli and Morris. Ed, have you got any ideas at all? Anything we could try? That's why I called you in. None of us have gotten any further than you did just now. There's just one thing I want to know for sure. Yeah, Friday. Is it or isn't it? We all want to know. Either way, we've got to get that box away from him. Backstrand. Yeah. You did? Yeah. No, stay out there till I call you. All right, here's half the answer. That was Pacelli. They found 28 sticks of dynamite in Carney's apartment. We knew Carney wasn't kidding now. We could see into the bomb through that glass window in one end. It looked like dynamite inside, and there was dynamite in Carney's room. 
We didn't know if he had the nerve to pull the trigger. We didn't know if it would go off when he did. But with only minutes remaining, nobody wanted to take the chance. From here on in, all of us agreed that Vernon Carney sat in the next room holding in his two hands a force powerful enough to destroy us all. We had to get that box away from him. And to get that box, we had to have a plan. I looked at my watch. It was 8.40. 20 minutes till 9 o'clock. How do we get it away from him? I got an idea. It might work. Let's have it. Carney's sitting against the far wall between two windows. They're both open. Yeah, that's right. All right, if we could get a man through one of those windows, we might get Carney from behind. How are you going to get him? Whoever gets through the window could slug him. What do you do then? Somebody grabs the box. The crime lab can tell us what to do with it. How do we get a man through one of those windows? We're on the 16th floor. Well, there's some kind of a ledge that runs around the building on each story. Wide enough for a man to walk on? And let's take a look. All right. Looks pretty narrow, Joe. That's a good 18 inches. Could be done. Oh, too risky. It's raining out. That ledge is slippery. Strong wind out there, Joe. Tear a man right off the building. Yeah, I guess you're right. Well, there's still a way. How about a ladder? 16 floor, Skipper. There might be a way. The fire department would know that. I'll get Battalion Chief Erickson. Is Lee Jones in the building? No, he's over in the crime lab. I'll get him up here, too. I don't know, Friday. Maybe it'll work. It's got to, Ed. All right, now look. It's going to take a couple of minutes to set this up. We've got to know what Carney's doing every second of that time. Well, how about the dictaphone in there on desk? Good. Get it on without him seeing you. We'll try. The dictaphone in there is connected to this one in here. This room is 1614. You got that? Yeah. All right, push down key 1614 on that machine in there and leave it down. Get the receiver off the hook and leave it off. Leave the receiver off. That's right. You know, if it isn't off the hook, we won't be able to hear a thing in here. All right. Come on, Ben. This is back, friend. Give me Chief Erickson. Where's my brother? Still in his cell. You coppers are long on talk, but short on time. Yeah, we know. I'm telling you, for your own good, you'd better get Elwood over here. Carney, I'll bet if we get your brother on the phone here, he'll tell you he doesn't want any part of this. You mean Elwood don't want out? Since when? Sure he wants out, but not your way. He's only got a year to serve. Why don't you leave him alone? I told El. I told him I'd get him out. He didn't think I could do it. But I'm doing it. I'll make you a bet, Carney. Let us get your brother on the phone. He won't walk out of here with you. All right, get him on the pipe. Where you going? The phone's over here. Have to use the dictaphone. Got to get an okay from the chief. Elwood's still a prisoner. What's the matter with the phone? No operators. You know the building's been cleared. Oh, yeah. That's right. Almost forgot. Okay, you can use the dictaphone. This Friday, Ed. Carney wants to talk to his brother. Yeah, I know you'll have to send somebody over. Have them put the call on extension... Uh, wait a minute. What's that extension number, Ben? 2351. 2351, Ed. Right. It'll take a minute. Yeah. I'd kind of like to talk to L. Been a couple of months since I seen him. We've always been together, me and L, most of the time. Joe, let's go in and see if we can hurry that call. Good idea, boy. 16 minutes to nine. Hey, cop. Yeah. Forgot to hang up the dictaphone, didn't you? I put the receiver back on the dictaphone. Ben and I had failed to make good on the first step of the plan. When we got outside the door, we briefed Davis and Watson. They went in to sit with Carney. It would be their job to keep us posted on Carney's movements. The dictaphone was out. We went back into the office next door. Chief Sam Erickson of the fire department and Lieutenant Lee Jones from the crime lab were already there. We told Backstrand what happened. It would have been a help. We haven't got time to cry over it. 
Corn is wide awake, Skipper. He doesn't miss a thing. Backstrand told us the plan, Friday. We can't run a ladder up from the street. Too high, Chief? Best we got is a 100-foot aerial. You figure 12 foot to the story, that'll take you up 96 feet, eight floors. And we've got the latest equipment. What's the idea you had, Jones? Sam, can you get hold of a pump here in a hurry? Sure, we got a lot of scaling ladders, but you got nothing up there to hook them on. You figure on dropping down from the floor above? That's right, and I figure a pump here would do it. Sure it would. You could make it faster the windowsill up there, but you got a foot and a half ledge in the way. No, what you want is a lifeline. You mean lower a man on a rope, Chief? Yeah, Romero. That's the quickest and the quietest. Could you rig it so one of my boys could do it? Sure, Ed. What's the risk? None, if you work it right. We'll strap on a life belt, give the man heavy leather gloves. Two of my men will lower him down. Uh, pick your lightest man. What do you think, Lee? That's it. What do we do with the bomb when we get it? I figure that box Connie's holding is about a foot square. Here's what I'll do. I'll get you a bucket with a foot and a half mouth. It'll be full of water. Yeah? I'll have it right outside the door of that office. When you get that box, place it in the water. We'll get the bucket out of the building as fast as we can. And once we get the bomb underwater, we're in a clear. And I can't promise you that, but it's the safest way to handle it under the circumstances. All right, that's the procedure. Sam, you take care of your end. Right away. I'll get a detail to give me a hand down on the street. We'll have a car ready to take the bomb to a safe area to decommission it. Work as fast as you can. Come on, Sam. It's our baby, Joe. That's right. Which part of it you want, the rope or the bomb? You call it. Fire Chief Erickson says the lightest man on the rope. That's me, Joe. All right, I'll get the bomb out of the building. Okay, that's the routine. But carry this with you. The man that comes down on that rope has one chance to make good. You slug him and make it count because there's no second try. Yeah. And Joe, when you grab that box, you've got to get it away from Carney before he can squeeze the trigger. Then you've got to get it down into the street. The elevator. You know how to operate it? That's well, pretty simple, but I'll double-check with the operator. Better do it right now. Okay. Ed, we better get Carney's brother on the phone for him. He seemed anxious. Might be a pretty good stall. All right, Romero. That's the outside phone. Get the city jail. All right, Skipper. Get going, Friday. Okay. Hey, you. Elevator man. Uh, yeah, Sergeant. Let me see if I know how to work that thing. You taking over the elevator? Well, in a couple of minutes. You want to check me out? Nothing to it, Sergeant. All right. Now, here's the control, see? Uh -huh. You push this lever right to go up, left to go down. You see this little trigger on the underside of the handle? Yeah. That's the safety lock. Be sure you squeeze it or you can't move the lever. Let me try it, huh? That's it. Uh -huh. Right to go up, uh -huh. left to go down. Right to go up, left to go down. How do you operate the doors? Automatic. They work off the control lever. When the control lever is locked in the up or down position, the doors will close. I get it. Now, in case they jam... This red emergency button up here? Yeah. Push it. If that doesn't close them, we call the repairman. Okay. I think I got it. You sure now? I've had my orders to get out of the building. I'll just leave the elevator right here and take the stairs down. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, Sergeant, hmm? uh, just curious. You going to take the bomb down in this car? We're going to try. You won't have any trouble. We haven't had an elevator failure in 18 months. The elevator man turned and went down the stairs. Outside of a handful of volunteers and a man with a bomb, the city hall was now cleared. I started down the corridor and met Ben outside the office. He told me that Lee Jones and Chief Erickson were on their way up in the freight elevator at the rear of the building with the necessary equipment. The two fire department volunteers were with them. The phone call had been put through to the city jail, and in a moment, Elwood Carney would be ready at the other end of the line. We went in to tell Carney. I told him over at the jail to put the call through on extension 2351. Yeah. When's it coming through? Right now. Right. You got Elwood with you? No. Look, Carney, we told you we'd get him on the phone for you. The call will be through in a minute. Minutes a long time, cop. You only got 12 of them left. 
Elwood's going to talk you out of this. Oh, sure. Sure, everybody's going to talk me out of this. First, it was them other two cops, the little porky guy and that other monkey. Then you and this Dixie Doughhead here. And now it's Elwood. Come off it, will you, and get my brother over here. That's him. It's your brother, Connie. I'll get him. Stay put, you. Just going to get the phone. You want to talk to your brother, don't you? I'll take care of the phone. We'll disconnect it for a while. Now get it straight, copper. I'm through with your stinking rotten lying. I want Elwood here. And I want him now. Bring him here before I blow you all to pieces. What's going on? Who threw that phone out in the hall? I did. You want me to go out and pick it up? Carney, that's not going to get you any place. You the big boss around here? Maybe. Are you or aren't you? I answered you. All right, big boy. I've got a piece of advice for you. Take your rookie cops here and get it through their heads. I mean what I say. I want my brother over here in this room. And you've got just 11 minutes to get it done. Tell him that, will you, boy? All right, Carney. It's your show. All right, we've got to work fast now. Jones, everything set for you? Got the bucket with the water right here. Car's waiting down in the street. Right. Erickson, your boy's ready? Upstairs, waiting. And we all know what to do. Ed, i got to have somebody to give me a hand with Carney when he falls. I'll be in there with you, Friday. I can go upstairs, Chief. Anytime. Oh, one thing you ought to know. What's that? Strong wind coming up. About 20 mile an hour out there right now. That going to louse us up? No, but it's going to increase the sway. Got to allow for it. How you mean? Wind's coming from the south. We'll lower you just to the right of the window. If I figure it correctly, wind will do the rest. Bigger risk, but we don't control the weather. How you going to do it, Ben? As soon as I get in position, I'll reach in through the window on his right. I'll use the belly. Try to catch him on the right side of his head. One good hit should put him away. Let's make it two and be sure, huh? Right. You ready, G? Now, let's go. Ben. Yeah? Nothing. I'll be careful. You too, huh? What's the time, Friday? 8.50. Shouldn't take more than a couple of minutes for Romero to get down to that window. Unless the wind gives them trouble. Jones, no use you sticking around. I'll give Friday a hand. That's my job. We've got to keep you alive to decommission the bomb. Bomb joke. See you downstairs. You ready, Ed? Yeah. Scared, Friday? Yeah. That makes us even. Come on. Ed Backstrand and I went into the next room with Vernon Carney. Our job was to keep him occupied until Ben was lowered to the windowsill from the floor above. Ben was going to make a try from the window on Carney's right. Somehow, we had to keep Carney's attention on us and away from that window. If anything went wrong and Carney got out of position, the plan would fail. If Ben was spotted, the plan would fail. If Chief Erickson didn't estimate the force of the wind correctly, the plan would fail. After Ben slugged Carney, my timing had to be perfect. If it wasn't, the plan would fail. I looked at my watch. It was eight minutes to nine. Carney, anything we can say that'll make you change your mind? I've asked you a hundred times. Now I'm ordering you. You're going to get to a phone and have somebody send Elwood over here right now. I'm through waiting. Now move. You ripped out the phone, Carney. Well, find another one. I told you I'm sick of your two-bit stalling. We've got until nine o'clock to make up our mind about this. You had until nine. But you wouldn't do what I told you. Now I'm cutting you short. 
You guys have got exactly one minute to get a phone in this room where I can hear you call the jail and have them send Elwood over here. You said nine, Carney. All right, Joe. We'll give him what he wants. Davis, unlock the connecting door to this office. I'll get the phone, Ed. Will the cord reach? Yeah. Your brother's a prisoner. He's in our custody and he's under our protection. We can't place his life in jeopardy. Why not leave it up to Al? Here's the phone, Ed. Yeah. Kenworthy, this is Backstrand. We want Elwood Carney over here at City Hall. His brother wants to see him. Explain the situation. If he wants to come, get him over here. Leave it up to him. Room 1614. You'll have to use the freight elevator. And tell him to hurry. Yeah. Tell him to hurry. That's the only smart thing you've done today. Now, why don't you go next door and figure out another angle? We'll wait for Elwood, too. You don't think I'd let you get out now, do you? We're all going to wait right here for my brother. In case he don't show up, you're going to see me pull the plug. Just sit down. Not so close. Right where you are, sit down. Loud clock, ain't it? Windy. Getting cold in here. Sure, a loud clock. Real windy. Maybe I ought to close the windows. Don't want to catch me a cold. I can turn on the heat. Stay put, cop. Hey, what's that? What's going on? Just the wind. Shut up! There's somebody out there. I can see his feet. You stupid cops! Pull him up! Get back there! You pull him up! Friday told him to pull him up. Right. All right, Carney. You win. You bet I win, you dumb coppers. You didn't think I'd miss a trick like that? We'll just close these windows, boys. There's one, and lock it. And here's here's your brother, Carney. You did it. I told you. I told you I'd do it, didn't I? That's far enough for the rest of you. El, come on over here. You're crazy, Vern. You're crazy. That's what they've been trying to tell me. We're going home, El. How are you going to do it? There's a million cops outside. People all over town heard about this. They're holding the crowd back. They ain't going to stop us now, El. You'll never make it. Either one of you. I got him this far, didn't I? (laughs) We'll make it. Fern, you think we could do it? Hey, you. Yeah? You're going to get a car ready for us, a fast one. Have it in front of the building. Move! All right, Franny, do what he tells you. Right. Hold it. Yeah. If you ain't back by 9 o'clock, the deal still holds. I told him I'd pull the pin at 9, Al, if they didn't let you out. You ain't fooling, are you, Vern? Will that gadget really blow? Four miles high. You know what that means, Al? Yeah, but they won't let you pull it. We're getting out. All right, copper. Get the car. You've got four minutes. Hey, Ben, Ben. What happened? He spot me? Yeah, there's no time to explain. Now, listen, we've got to work fast. Yeah. We had to bring Carney's brother over from the jail. 
I don't think he cares if they get out or not. He just wants to use that bomb, and for some crazy reason, he's waiting until nine. How much time we got? Let me look. Less than four minutes. How about the ledge? You think you can do it? Strong wind. You'll have to hang on like a fly. I don't know. I can give it a try. Okay. Same plan. Every second counts. Now, I can't brief Ed. He's in the room with the guy. It's up to you and me. I'll get on the ledge from one of these offices. I hope I'll make it. If you don't, we'll know you tried. Hurry. Hey, Ben, wait a minute. Yeah? I forgot. The windows. The one on his right. He locked it. You'll have to crawl around to the one on the left. You got it? Right. Okay. The car will be ready in two minutes. Out front. Fine. Ellen, I'll just sit here and wait. Gonna be good being back together, Hyle. We always were real good together, Vern. Yeah, that's the way brothers ought to be together all the time. Together. Uh, Vern, I'd feel better with a gun. We don't need no gun, Al. <laughs> we got the bomb. We'll need a gun when we get out, when we get on the road. Okay. Take your pick. They all got them. Hey, you, give him yours. I'm not carrying a gun. I left it in the other room. A cop without a gun? Who's kidding who? I left it in the other room. Frisk the big boy, Al. He's got one. About time for the car, ain't it? Two minutes to nine. Yeah, this feels like it. Right on his hip. Burn! Hey, look out! Grab him, Joe. I got him. Yeah. Get the box. Leave that gun alone. I got him, Ben. I gotta get his hand out of it. Run, Joe. Get it in the water. Run! shared an elevator with a live bomb. It seemed like minutes between floors. I kept watching the bucket. The bomb was completely underwater. A small stream of bubbles was hissing to the surface. I waited. Main floor. I picked up the bucket and ran for the street. I missed the first step. I fell forward. The bucket spun out of my hand. I sprawled flat on the sidewalk. I waited for the explosion. It didn't go off Friday. Yeah. I gave it a good chance, Lee. It was all there. Look. At least a dozen sticks of dynamite. Snyder, bring that over here. Here you are, Lieutenant. Thanks. Thanks. Here's why it didn't go off. Mm-hmm. Had it rigged for a hard trigger pull. Would have taken a good yank to set this one off. Yeah. Hi, Joe. Hi, Ben. Clumsy. The story you have just heard is true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Vernon Carney was examined by five different psychiatrists appointed by the Superior Court and was found to be incompetent. He is now confined in the state mental institution for the criminally insane. Elwood Carney is now serving the balance of his sentence with no time off for good behavior. (laughs) 
have just heard the seventh in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet is furnished by the Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Town Marshal Lon T. Larson of the Mount Pleasant, Utah Force, who on the night of October 15, 1945, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. All right, now then what you need to do next is you need to dig up that secret stash of Iraqi dinar. Now, uh, for those who don't know, that's the currency of the now entirely defunct and non-existent Bank of Iraq. And you'll know them because they got the face of Saddam Hussein, cousin of Barack Hussein, of course. Wait, wait. Uh, yes, yes, go ahead. Whoa, whoa, whoa. B- Barack Hussein? What? What? Barack Hussein. See, the little-known uh, red-headed cousin of Saddam Hussein, who actually lived in Kentucky and was a Kentucky dirt farmer oh, for uh, oh, quite I, some time. Hey, I, we, I thought you were talking sure. about someone else there. Um, no, absolutely not. No, no, nothing contemporary about it. Now, you need to switch these out with Deutschmarks. And for those who don't know, there's barrels of them out there. So you want to revalue Willie, the Deutschmark. So you have I, to reperform Willie, the unification of Germany Willie, of 1871 and resurrect German Emperor Wilhelm I, Willie, the King of Prussia. Now, once you've done, Willie, I, yeah, I yeah, appreciate I appreciate the opportunity you're giving us to to make a make a little extra cash on the side, well, but I don't think we'll be course. resurrecting any. Well, it won't be cash. You, you won't make cash. Uh, uh, that's not Regar- a result. I don't of this, think I don't think we're going to head down that place. route. We're kind of focused on the the podcast that we're siphoned boat gasoline is is oh, where this ends. Jake, actually. don't ever play another game of craps again. You know, somehow I knew it was going to end there with the siphoned gasoline. <laughs> siphoned. Um, Yes. Yeah. Your lips will get a little stained there, my friends. But after a while, you just put a little uh, put a little Vaseline on there. Works out fine. I heard chewing gum helps with the breath, too. Uh, Willie, what's the next show on the docket? Oh, the next show is titled, This is Your FBI. This is Your FBI. Fort Knox doesn't actually exist. Just wanted to throw that out there. It's a little, little tidbit for you. Also, Willie, I did have one question for you before we play that show. Oh, go right um, ahead. Now, I'm not blaming you for anything. Oh, oh. I'm not insinuating this is entirely your fault. Ooh. But concurrent with your arrival to the studio today, I've noticed a strange smell coming from the air vents. Ah. Uh, well, that that's a result of a sort of a, a mash uh, process. Uh, Mash process? Well, you see... Uh, Are you mashing potatoes in the basement? Uh, not not potatoes. Uh, thousands of pounds of book pulp. Book pulp? Books go unused, and we've been, we've been making whiskey out of them. Um, Press pause on that thought. You're making whiskey out of old books in the basement of this building. Well, you see, there's a book depository across the street, and there's all these... All these books in there that just ain't doing nothing. Uh, so we thought we'd make whiskey out of them. Get a little pine cone in there. Hard, hard to argue with that, Willie. Once again, you are you're a mastermind of of reasoning and. Um, well, it's especially hard to argue with it once you're drunk on mash book whiskey. How does book whiskey taste? Oh, awful. Why? 
Why do you make it? Because, boy, it gets you under the table real quick. <laughs> okay, I probably shouldn't have asked you that. Um, yeah, okay, all right. This is your FBI, folks. Um, I tried some Willie's yeah. mash whiskey, and a uh, boy really hit me right in the appendix. Uh, appendix? Oh! <laughs> wow! That... That was something. <laughs> this is your FBI. This is your FBI, an official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. To your FBI, you look for national security. And to the Equitable Society, for financial security. These two great institutions are dedicated to the protection of you, your home, and your country. Tonight... The story of a peril to the nation. Escape prisoners of war. There are several million Nazis across the sea. Each one of them is a threat to the security of this country. There are several hundred thousand Nazis right here within our borders, prisoners of war. Each one of them who escapes is a threat to the internal security of this country because they are Nazis. And for us, for our democracy, for our way of life, Nazis have but one feeling, contempt. The FBI proved that less than a year ago by a case that broke on the morning of June 19th. Early that sunny morning, two soldiers, two G.I.s, were walking through a patch of woods on their way back to camp. Hey... Look, Eddie, a rabbit. What am I supposed to do, salute? Gee, did you see him go? Boom, right into the ground. Probably crawled down a hole to sleep. Gee, if he's just down a little hole... What are you pawing around for now? I always wanted to have a rabbit for a pet. All right, so you always wanted a rabbit. This is no time... Hey, Eddie. Yeah? What kind of a rabbit could dig a hole this big a big rabbit. Come on. Hey, these leaves are just covering up the entrance to a tunnel, it looks like. A big sake, Mickey. Hey, it is a tunnel. C- come on in. I'm too tired. Oh, come on. What do you got to lose? Well, I really am tired. <sighs> Where's your pioneer spirit? And where's your rabbit? Don't tell me. What's the matter? It stops here, that's all. Oh, that's great. Now, I suppose we crawl back like a couple of brave pioneers. Wait a second. Help me push this thing up. What thing? Uh, The roof here. Feels like boards or a trap door or something. Yeah, it does. Come on, push. I'm tired. Now, will you push? One, two, three. 
That was on Monday morning, June 19th. But the tunnel had already been used. During the night of the 18th, two Nazi prisoners had escaped. That was in Texas. And immediately, the FBI headquarters in that state were notified by military authorities. They weren't caught unprepared because special arrangements had been made for such an emergency. And the special agents went to work immediately. The newspapers, the radio stations, and most important, the local police of Dallas and Fort Worth were notified and given detailed descriptions of the two men. The police radioed warnings to all sheriffs and all peace officers. And broadcasts were also sent out over the Texas State Patrol's network. By late afternoon, the FBI was busy checking the dozens and dozens of reports which kept coming in. Dean speaking. Yes? Yes. Yes, okay. Thanks a lot, Sheriff. All right. Well, that's another lead going, Phil. Which one? Those two fellows spotted fixing a puncture on a back road. Those local police sure get on the job quick. Age 23. What? I was just reading over the description of Tanner. Oh. Lieutenant Paul Tanner of the German Navy. Captured when submarine disabled by depth charge. Dean speaking. Yeah? Uh-huh. I see. Okay, thanks a lot. All right. Which one was that? Those two men seen sleeping in that cemetery. Bad lead? Yes. Something's got to turn up, Dean. Yes, and you know when it does, Hackenberg's going to be easier to spot than Tanner. Because of that scar on his cheek? Yes. Well, with the whole state out on the hunt, there's got to be... Dean speaking. Yes? Yes? Yes. Thanks. Right. Bicycle was stolen from a house one mile from the camp the night of the escape. Bicycle? Yes, and the house was on the same road the prisoners took when they went on labor details. That sounds good. That sounds better than good. Two men on one bicycle. They ought to be easy to spot, Phil. If we can spot them before they get rid of the bike, let's send out a call. Right. Late that afternoon, a truck driver reported seeing two men on a bicycle on the night of the escape. An hour later came another call. A farmer had seen two men on a bicycle the morning after the escape. Then there were no more calls, no more reports. The search was intensified, but by one o'clock on the morning of the 20th, the two Nazis and the bicycle seemed to have disappeared, seemed to have vanished completely. Where were they? At that moment, at one o'clock on the morning of June 20th, they were sitting in a diner. Dressed in blue jeans and khaki shirts, drinking coffee, two escaped Nazis were sitting in an all-night diner in a small town in Texas, USA. You boys want anything with that coffee? No, thanks. You ain't from around here, are you? No. Just passing through? Yes. Where are you heading? Uh, east. East, huh? I know somebody's going east. Maybe we will have something else. Uh, do you have any pie? Sure, what kind you want? Oh, anything that's good. 
You pick it out. Yeah, trust me. Sure. Okay. Two pieces? Yes. Okie doke. Whitey, let, let me have two cuts of that peach pie. Okay. Now, Whitey, now. I heard ya. Gee, I'm getting hungry myself. Scramble me up a couple eggs. They just ate an hour ago. Well, I'm a growing girl. Scramble up the eggs, you cheapskate. Here's your pie. Thanks. Toast with them eggs, too. It's peach pie, boys. Don't shoot. I don't think we want the pie after all. But you ordered it. We have to go. Here. You didn't even finish your Come coffee. on, let's go. Let's go. Good night. Huh? How you come with those eggs, Whitey? Well, keep your shirt on. You'll get them. You can put this pie back. What's the matter? Beats me. Didn't they want it? They didn't want nothing. They even left the coffee. <laughs> Millionaires, huh? Come on, make with the eggs. The griddle ain't hot enough yet. Park yourself. Here, ring this up. I'll keep the change. How much? Dime. You ain't going to charge him for the pie, are you? I guess not. And what those guys rush out for? Now, how do I know? That griddle looks hot enough to me. You want your toast, though, don't you? And coffee. Uh, how about a steak, too, your highness? Ha, <laughs> ha. Very funny. Whitey? Yeah? What's Tonkishin mean? Huh? Tonkishin or... Tonka shine? What? One of those fellows said it to me when I brought him the pie. The pie he didn't eat, huh? Yeah. I think I'll have a piece myself. Oh, here. Tonkashin. What? Maybe that's French for what's your telephone number? French? <laughs> Sounds more like German to me. Where do you get German out of that? Listen, when you want to say thank you in German dope, you say donka shine. That's it. That's what he's... Whitey. Holy crow. That diner was in a small town. But even the smallest town has more than one road leading out of it. And it's never long before a road branches into other roads, into a network of roads, into highways. As soon as the telephone call came in from the diner... The FBI and the local police drove out after the two men on the bicycle, after the escaped Nazi prisoners. They tried to cover all roads. They kept in touch with each other by radio. And they drove fast because they realized that even on a bicycle, a man can make time if he's desperate. Where are we now, Dean? About 20 miles outside of Vancourt. Must be awfully strong. Hmm? Who? Whoever's pedaling that bike... Get this far so fast, and with a passenger. Yeah, if they're still using the bike. Or if they haven't ducked off into a field. Well, if they have, we should be able to catch them in the morning. <clears throat> the whole area's been alerted. They managed to disappear completely for at least 24 hours so far. I know, Phil, but if we... That is a bicycle, isn't it? Looks like it from here. You have your gun ready? Yes. Dean, do you see anybody on the handlebars? No. 
Don't tell me it's going to be a farmer out for a joyride. At this hour of the morning? Say. Huh? Pull over to the side there. Where are you going, mister? Vancouver. What for? Why do you want to know? We're federal officers. What's your name? Frank Johnson. Isn't it kind of late to be out for a ride, Mr. Johnson? Oh, my sister just had a baby. I rode over to see her. Oh, from where? Vancourt. You live there? Yes. Can we see your draft card, please? I'm sorry I forgot it. You know how it is when you get a call that the baby... What's the matter? Where'd you get that scar on your cheek? Germany. Where's Lieutenant Tanner? I really could not say, but probably very well taken care of. What do you mean? Americans are extremely hospitable and just as stupid. I think you'd better get in the car, Hackenberg. Captain Hockenberg. Captain Hockenberg. Thank you, sir. By morning, the Texas newspapers and radio stations had spread the report... One prisoner was captured, but the other was still at large. An escaped Nazi was still free, was still somewhere in the vicinity of Vancourt, Texas. The cooperation of every citizen was requested, and the response was fast. Report after report came into the FBI and the state and local police. Report after report was checked and followed up. The most promising came from a doctor. Well, gentlemen, I was coming home from a late call, and... Just as I passed that filling station outside San Angelo, I noticed a man climbing into the back of this truck. About what time was that, Doctor? Oh, I left the hospital at 2. I guess that was about 5 after. What'd the man look like? Well, to tell the truth, I didn't notice him much or think much about it till I heard the radio broadcast about the escaped prisoners this morning. Now, thank you, Doctor. We appreciate your help. That doesn't sound like much help. It doesn't even sound like a real clue. But the FBI checks everything, every report. Special agents immediately called the owner of the San Angelo filling station. He remembered selling gas to a truck driver a little after two in the morning before. But he'd only seen one man on the truck. From the gas coupon, the agents learned the license number of the truck. From the license registration, they learned the name and address of the owner. And then they went to him to see what they could learn from the truck itself. You can see for yourself, I'm here fixing a blowout like it was. Anybody could hop on the bag without me seeing them. Would be pretty easy, don't you think, Dean? Well, let's see if there's anything in the back to prove that Nazi was riding with you. Well, what you looking for? Oh, lots of things. Fingerprints? <laughs> yeah, but with all this cloth back here, I doubt if we'll find any. The surface is too soft. To... Phil, you have your flashlight? Sure. Shine it over here, will you? Is that your hatchet, Mr. Lang? Yeah, use it to open crates. You mind if we borrow it to send to our laboratory for a fingerprint check? No, sir, it's all... Hey. What? That Nazi could have been riding the back of my truck and picked up my hatchet. Hey, I had a pretty narrow escape. Well, we don't know yet whether he was the one. Even so... Wait a minute. Shine that flash over here, Phil. Right. Yeah, this may be something. That... Sure. Why? 
That's just a little piece of thread. Here's an envelope for it, Dean. Thanks. This little piece of thread, Mr. Lang, is going to take a long trip to our laboratory in Washington. What for? They'll find out what kind of a shirt it came from. And I got a hunch it came from the kind of shirt worn by prisoners of war. The hatchet and the piece of thread arrived at the FBI laboratory in Washington on the morning of June 21st. That afternoon, the result of the examination was teletyped to special agents in Texas. From a small piece of thread, from one fingerprint on the blade of a hatchet, there was proof, conclusive proof, that the hitchhiker on the back of the truck had been Lieutenant Paul Tanner of the German Navy. But where had he gone? Where was he now? An escaped prisoner of war, a Nazi, was still at large in the state of Texas. We momentarily close the Federal Bureau of Investigation file of the case of escaped Nazi prisoners of war. We will return to this case in just a moment. It is the year 1872. A distinguished army officer... A young man with golden hair that reaches to his shoulders is about to sign his name to an application for membership in the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. The Indians of the Western Plains call him White Chief with the yellow hair. But you and I will know him better by the name he is signing on the Equitable application. So let's watch his pen as it writes, George Armstrong Custer. Brevet Major General, USA. A name that has also been inscribed for all time on the roll of America's immortal soldiers. Now, we do not know what led General Custer to choose the equitable. But we do know that he showed sound judgment. For in four wars and through seven major depressions, this society has never failed to meet a single financial obligation. And for 86 years... Equitable funds have marched in the vanguard of American progress. Equitable dollars helped build the railroads. They promoted the growth of our greatest industries. They helped grow wheat in Minnesota, oranges in California, cotton in Texas. So by serving its members, the Equitable serves America. And now, back to the file on Paul Tanner, escaped prisoner of war. When a convict escapes jail or when a Nazi escapes prison camp, it is fairly easy to catch him during the first two or three days because the trail is fresh. But after that, just as rain can blot out footprints, the trail can disappear into nowhere. That's what happened to the trail of Paul Tanner, former lieutenant on a German submarine. The search continued all through the summer. Reports came in, but by September, Tanner was still free. Where was he? Still in Texas. As a matter of record, he was working as a hired hand for a farmer named Allen, working under the name of Gene Meyer, working to get enough money to escape to Mexico. Gene! Gene! Yes, Dickie? Gene, look what I got done. Uh, Dickie, don't start pestering Gene with those model airplanes or whatever they are. But, Pa, we want He worked hard today and he wants to rest. Oh, that's okay, Mr. Allen. Let me see what you got done today, Dickie. Say, Gene... Are you going to have to go back to that hospital? Oh, no. Merchant seamen aren't like Army or Navy. We're pretty free. Should I glue this on now? Uh Uh-huh. That's right. 
Still, it's funny they let you do what you wanted after you got out of the hospital. What do you mean, funny? A little further down, Dickie. Right. Well, not making you go back to sea. I told you. I decided to work, to build up my health. Well, I ought to just pray that they let you finish out the harvest. Every time the mail comes, I... Say, that's no model airplane. Whoever said it was, Pa? Anybody can tell it's a submarine. A submarine? Where'd you learn about submarines? Gene drew the plans for it. Oh, it looks just like a picture, one I saw. Oh, nuts. Come on, Gene. We'll finish after supper, Dickie. You wash your hands, Dickie. I did. Wash them again. Oh, Pa. That's a darn good submarine. I guess you... (laughs) What's the matter? Oh, I was going to say it's probably model of a sub you was on yourself, and then I remembered. Remembered what? Mm, They don't have merchant seamen on submarines. Come on, let's eat. Sit down, Mr. Allen. Oh, thank you, sir. Sheriff Ulster said you might have some information for me. Well, I don't know for sure, sir, but I... Well, I think my hired hand's that Nazi prisoner you've been looking for. What makes you think so? Well, uh, he's been helping my little boy build model planes and stuff, uh, you know. Yeah, sure. Last night, I got a look at something they were making. It was from some plans this fella drew. And you know what the darn thing was? A submarine. Submarine? Yeah. And I got to thinking about it in bed last night. It looked just like the real thing, and I was wondering... Excuse me, Mr. Allen. Sir? Yeah, look at this photograph. Sure. Why? Why, that's him. Let's go, Phil. Is this his room, Mr. Allen? Yes, sir. Where is he now? Well, I left him cutting hay down near the river bottom. I think I'll go over there. Right, Phil. Doesn't have much stuff of his own, does he? No. Nothing you don't see. Except that little zipper bag there. Let's have a look at it. Sure. Here you are. I wonder where he picked this up. It doesn't seem to be... What is it? Something in the lining here. A book. It's a diary. Hmm. June 20th. We had a close call today. H completely forgot himself in a restaurant. He sure did. I am a soldier of the Reich, and I must get back to the fatherland. Did he write that junk? It's not junk to him, but to people like him, Mr. Allen. That's something a lot of us don't realize. Listen to this. These Americans are stupid fools. This miserable country will cry for help when the Fuhrer lets loose his secret weapons, and I will be there to help him. That fellow's crazy. Well, he's a Nazi. Dean. Yes? He's gone. What? Not a sign of him in the field. He was there when I left. Did he see you go? Sure. Did he ask why you were going? I said for supplies. Guess he knew you didn't go to town often and got suspicious. He must have cleared out right after Mr. Allen did. Why? There was a jug of water next to the mower, and it's full to the top. But where did he go? I don't know where he went, but I know where he was heading. Where? Galveston. He's got it in his diary. Thirty more dollars, and I'm ready to leave for Galveston, then Mexico. I guess he didn't wait for his thirty dollars. Mr. Allen... That river down there. Oh, he'd take you to Galveston, all right. 
Once I rode there, me and Dickie and... Rode there in what? An old flat bottom I have. Did you have it beached right near the hayfield? Yeah. I followed some footprints down there. Your boat's gone, Mr. Allen. And that Nazi in it? Yes. And if, if he gets to Galveston... Mr. Allen, I don't think he will. The Brazos River winds its way through Texas to Galveston. And along its banks are reeds, tall grass, foliage thick enough to hide a man in a flat-bottomed boat. They hid Paul Tanner for the rest of that hot afternoon. But by nightfall, sheriffs, deputies, state patrolmen, local police, and citizens from all around had joined in the hunt. By nightfall, FBI agents were in planes and motorboats watching the river and keeping contact with each other by walkie-talkie radios. By nightfall, there was a moon. A bright moon that stripped the river of shadows and made it a clear field of vision for a plane flying above. Moving upstream toward the bridge. Nothing yet from up here. We're moving up too, Dean. But this boat's running low on gas. Well, you think you can hold out about... Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Phil. I just saw a reflection of moonlight on... Something that... Yes, there it is again. Looks like a wet paddle. Close to the right shore, heading downstream. It's about a quarter of a mile above Dead Man's Bend now. Just below Hempstead. He's moving closer to shore, though. Looks like he's trying to land. Come on. Give her everything you've got. There he is. He's trying to make shore. Cut her off. Stay where you are, I'll shoot. I warn you, Tanner, stay where you are, or... Okay. Come on, jump aboard. Well, you led us a fine chase. Who's in command here? In command? Yes. I am. Heil Hitler! At this moment, there are approximately 390,000 prisoners of war in this country. Most of them are Nazis, and each one is a potential threat to our safety. Alert citizens and cooperative law enforcement officers have aided your FBI in the quick apprehension of escaped prisoners of war before they could commit army acts of sabotage. But they remain a menace. Any information on an escaped prisoner should be reported immediately to the FBI. A Nazi may have been a prisoner in this country for a year or for two years. He may have had a chance to learn something about us, about our democracy, about our way of life. Don't think, however, that his objective has changed. It hasn't. He is still a threat to our security, still a menace, because he is still a Nazi. In these days, young Americans are fighting and dying all over the world. So the question, what are you doing here at home to help win the war, is one that deserves a straightforward answer from every American citizen, from every American organization. Members of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States may take pride in their society's answer to that question. In the Equitable Service flag are 2,015 stars. 
Here at home, equitable agents and employees are backing up their fellow workers in the fighting forces by selling thousands of war bonds in every drive, by giving hundreds of blood donations, and by performing all the other services that are expected of patriotic citizens in wartime. Of the funds that have been entrusted to the Equitable Society by its members, 44% has been invested in government bonds. In both the fifth and sixth war loan drives, the Equitable made the largest single subscription, each subscription amounting to $500 million. In wartime, Equitable dollars are fighting dollars. And at all times, they are security dollars for you, your home, and your country. The incidents used in tonight's broadcast are taken from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious and any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. In tonight's cast, Tanner was played by Paul Mann. The music was under the direction of Van Cleave. The author was Lawrence MacArthur. And your narrator was Frank Lovejoy. This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. Now, this is Carl Frank speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time for This is Your FBI. This is the Blue Network of the American Broadcasting Company. Now, this brings us to that so-called Statue of Liberty. Are you listening, son? I'm, oh, I'm, I'm all ears, Willie. All right, all right. So the French, you see, gifted this statue to the uh, then false government of the United States. Ah, uh, you were so close. It, oh, well, they failed to... You almost said something factual there, back there. Oh, all right, all right, focus, focus. So they failed to deed the statue as property. Now, after 100 okay. years, it has entered a claimless state, meaning you, yes, you... You can own your own piece of the Statue of Liberty. You're kidding. Oh, I ain't kidding. And now, how would I go about obtaining my, my portion, my piece, Willie? Well, see, I became the sole deed holder in sovereign status of several body parts of the statue, which I am free to disperse. Willie, oh, Willie, thank goodness, Willie, Jake. Thank Willie, you so much. William Beauregard, Huckster the Fourth. Oh, right, yes. The, I have a question for you. Yes. I went to get something out of the closet just now. Would you like to guess what I found in our closet? Oh, in, uh, in your closet? The one that I thought... Uh, yes, the one right there. Oh. Uh, it's our city councilman, and he's tied up with a gag in his mouth. What is happening, William? It's not, it's not entirely accurate to call him a city councilman. See, uh, the, the local charter, which was established in this region in 1827... Uh, made this a, a not a municipality. So any existence of the city council really, is really... why do you have a city councilman tied up in our closet? Well, I couldn't leave him out in the trailer. He was kicking and making a big old fuss, and I just burned wicker... Uh. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. Why have you kidnapped the city councilman? I, I didn't have an... I didn't have anywhere to bury him yet. <sighs>
He's not dead. That's the problem I need to solve. Willie? I think I'll kill myself. Before I lose my temper completely, I'm going to ask you very kindly, very calmly, to untie the man and let him go. <sighs> All right. I'll untie him and I'll let him go, but I ain't going to be friendly about it. Oh, now, now on my way out, it could quit, quit struggling, you. You'll, you'll live through this. Uh, the, the next show that y'all going to listen to while I take care of this mess is Calling All Cars. Now, come here, you. Shut up. Calling All Cars, a copyrighted program created by the Rio Grande Oil Company. Los Angeles Police calling all cars. Attention all cars. Broadcast 143. Investigate a man dragging a body down Franklin Avenue. That's all. Rosenquist. Everybody wonders why, year after year, Rio Grande continues to get so many contracts from cities and counties throughout the West, specifying Rio Grande cracked gasoline with tetraethyl to power more police and emergency cars than any other brand. The secret of Rio Grande's success lies in a refining process, which is protected by patent. The Sinclair cracking process, which is used exclusively by Rio Grande in the Pacific Coast market. Rio Grande's outstanding success with cracked gasoline has led many other companies to install cracking plants, but none of these are as efficient as the patented Rio Grande Sinclair process. Millions of dollars have been invested by Rio Grande in complicated pressure stills that chew up gasoline so it will start quicker in your engine, accelerate faster, and turn into power without waste. All lazy, slow-burning units are extracted. Naturally, it costs Rio Grande more per gallon to, pro to process cracked gasoline, but the cost to you is no more, and Rio Grande is rewarded for this extra expense by its growing sales of cracked gasoline, which have outstripped all competition. You have been impressed, like hundreds of thousands of other motorists, by the undeniable fact that Rio Grande cracked gasoline is preferred above all others by the fastest, most powerful cars on the road, police cars fire engines, ambulances. When are you going to find out for yourself what a tremendous difference this super-refined gasoline will make in the performance of your car? Rio Grande Cracked Gasoline offers you police car performance in your own car at no extra cost. And now it is our pleasure to present Chief James E. Davis of the Los Angeles Police Department. Chief Davis. Good evening, friends. The job of being a policeman is a discouraging one. We, whose duty it is to enforce the law, see all too much of the violation of laws, both man-made and natural laws. Sometimes we despair of the human animal, so prone is he to make mistakes, and having made them, continue to do so. It is a difficult task to apply the legal yardstick to cases where natural laws are violated. An example is the case you are about to hear. The murderer was maladjusted to life. The damage had been done to his personality long before he committed his crime. 
called in, as we were to investigate, and in a sense, as is always the case, to sit in judgment upon this fellow man, we could not help realize that he was paying, not for the crime of murder, but for deep-rooted maladaptations in his personality, beginning perhaps in babyhood. If so much of the sentimentality and false values, false propaganda and prudishness, which goes into our social training could be swept away, if we could be trained from infancy to think instead of to feel, then indeed would crime drop to a historical low level. Then indeed would crimes of passion, of the nature you will soon hear, disappear completely. It is a blustery March evening in 1930. In a bungalow court apartment in Hollywood, two couples are seated around a card table before a blazing fire. And that gives us game and rubber. Not much luck for the visiting fireman tonight. <laughs> well, you can't win all the time, you know. Well, I really think we must be going. It must be past 10 o'clock. Oh, come on. Let's play another rubber. Sure, Edith. Give me a chance to show this car chalk. I know some tricks. <laughs> okay. Well, all right, but I know you, Harry. You never want to stop. That's right. <laughs> Except when I'm winning. <laughs> <laughs> it's your deal, Jimmy. All right. How would you like it? Four aces apiece? <laughs> no, just give me the four aces. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, look. Oh, what's the matter? There in the doorway of the kitchen. A man. Uh, what? what? I beg your pardon. May I see you for a minute? Well, uh, uh, sure, sure. Uh, you girls' partners? You better come with me, Harry. Okay. Oh, don't, Jimmy. He looks dangerous. Like a living ghost. Don't be silly, honey. He's probably drunk. Uh, come on into the kitchen here. Now, what is it? I need help. There's a woman. A woman? Where? What's the matter? She's sick. Where is she? Next door. You've got to help me. Well, all right. Lead the way. In here. In the living room. She's in the living room. There. Where is she? She looks like she's asleep. Yeah. But she's sick. You've got to help me. Help me get her up on the floor. The okay. Floor. Uh, Harry, yeah? you take her head. I'll, I'll take her feet. Okay. You ready? Hey, wait a minute. She, she's cold. Look, Jimmy. Her arms are stiff. I saw her legs. Spots on her dress. Wet. Sticky. They're blood. Jimmy, this woman isn't sick. She's dead. Come on, we, we better call the police. Yes, that's right. On Franklin, about a block from Sierra Bonita. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll be outside waiting for you. Oh, Jimmy, are you sure she's dead? There's no question about it. Oh, how awful. And that stranger, where's he? Oh, we forgot all about him. Oh, I'll bet that's him making a getaway. Look out the window, Edith. Yes, there he goes in a Ford Coupe, driving like mad. Oh, gee, we probably should have made him wait until the police get well, here. Well, it's too late now. Come on, come on, we better go outside and wait for them. Uh, you girls better stay here. It isn't such a pretty sight in there. Oh, but Jimmy, I... You don't want to get into this thing mixed up as a witness and all, do you? Just stay in here. Come on, Harry. 
see. See, I never handled a dead body before. Did you, Jimmy? No. Sort of... Sort of gives you the creeps, doesn't it? Sort of, yeah. Let's take a look in there again. No, no, I don't want to go nearer. I can see her through the window. Streetlight makes her look like she was sleeping. But she isn't. Come on, come on, let's get out to the sidewalk and wait for the cops. Officer. Now, what's the trouble? There's a dead woman in the bungalow back there. Okay, lead the way. Come on, Paige. Who is the woman? I haven't any idea. I live next door to the bungalow, and Mr. King here and his wife and my wife were playing bridge when a man came in our back door and asked us to help him with a woman who was sick. Huh? We tried to lift her off the floor where she was lying. We found she was cold and stiff. There was bloodstains on her dress. Where's the man? He drove away. Why didn't you hold him here? Well... So excited and in such a hurry to call you, we forgot all about him. Yeah. Here's the place. The side door here is open. Go right on through. She's in the living room. In here? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I don't see anything. There's a light switch right by the door. Well, where's your dead woman? Harry. Harry, she's gone. She's gone? Say, what is this? Some sort of practical joke? If it is, you two birds can laugh it off in jail. Oh, no, officer. I... I swear there was a dead woman laying in there not ten minutes ago. Maybe maybe somebody dragged her into another room. I'll look in the bedroom. You look in the kitchen, Harry. All right. She isn't in here. Nothing out here either. Nothing in the bathroom. I, I can't understand it. How much you boys had to drink tonight, huh? Not a drop. I, I don't know where she's gone, but I know she was lying right there in the middle of the floor ten minutes ago. And she got tired waiting for us to take her to the morgue, so she grew wings and flew away to heaven by herself, I suppose. Now, listen. You guys have got to believe us. We saw a corpse here. We tried to lift her. She was cold and stiff. I touched some wet spots in her dress and there were blood. Look, look, there's a stain right here on my finger. Look at it. Feel it. It's blood. Okay, so it's blood. But where's the body it came from? That's what I want to know. So do I. First the guy that looks like a ghost comes into the house and then we handle the corpse and then the corpse and the ghost both disappear. It, it just ain't natural. I thought at first you guys were just drunk. But it looks now as if you were plain nuts. Mr. Thompson! Mr. Thompson! Ah, here's your corpse. Come back to life. That's Mrs. Scott, the landlady. Hey, yes, Mrs. Scott. I'm in here. Oh, Mr. Thompson. Thanks, Henry. You're still up. Come quick, quick. Oh, what's the matter? Well, I'm here in front. There's a crazy man dragging a woman down the street. Why are you? Uh-oh. The woman's hurt. She's bleeding. See, what did I tell you? Who's crazy? I don't know. Maybe I am. Come on. Hey, there he is. Hey, you. Drop that. Now, what's the big idea? Huh? Shake him down, put the cuffs on him, Paige. I want to look at this woman. Right. She's uh, dead, all right. Where? Been dead for several hours. Where do you put Stiff as a board. Yeah. Our pal here had, had this on his hip. Mm, 38. Break it open. Loaded. No shells fired. What's your name, buddy? Who's this girl? What'd you kill her for? Whoa. Huh? I, I didn't kill her. I didn't kill her. I didn't kill her. Any of you people know this man? 
I never saw him before tonight. And neither did I. He rented that bungalow from me this afternoon, officer. He did? What did he say his name was? Mr. Burns. He gave me a $40 check to cover the rent. It was signed C.L. Burns. Know anything else about him? Well, after he rented the place, he left. But he came back about uh, 5.30 with this, this girl here. He introduced me to her as his wife, and I noticed at the time that she seemed surprised when he said that. They stayed in the bungalow until about 7.30, and then they drove away. I didn't see them again until just now when I saw them uh, this way. How about that, buddy? Is your name Burns? Hey, there's a Ford coupe parked over there. Is that your car? Huh? Yeah. Let's all go over and take a look at it. Check that registration page. That's what I'm going to do. Lend me a flash, will you? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it's registered to a dealer in Figueroa. There's a pencil notation here. What's that say? Sold March 23rd to Charles Thomas. So you just bought the car yesterday, huh? Is your name Charles Thomas? Or is it C.L. Burns? Oh, I'm going to book this baby on suspicion of murder. I'll send the morgue wagon out and a couple of boys to impound the car. You stick here until they come, will you, Paige? Right. And you better throw a sheet over that corpse until the wagon gets here. She ain't as pretty as she once was. Captain James Bean of Central Homicide assigns Lieutenants Leroy Sanderson and Aldo Corsini to the case. After a conference with Dwight and Page, the Hollywood Division detectives, they interview Burkhart and then report back to the captain. We can't get this guy to say a thing, Captain. He won't affirm or deny anything. He just won't talk. He's a strange one. There's no doubt of that. But we got one lead. What's that? We found a telephone number in the dead girl's purse. According to the phone company, the number is assigned to a Sally Martin who lives on New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Better check on it right away. Awful late at night to wake up people, Captain. I know. We've got to get to the bottom of this as soon as possible. Go ahead and rot her out of bed. Yes, sir. Why, this dame is sure a heavy sleeper. Yeah, if she's home. She ought to be home at 3 a.m. Here comes someone now. Who is it? Police, ma'am. We want to talk to you. What do you want to talk to me about? We're trying to get an identification. We need your help. Well, I don't see what you have to wake up people in the middle of the night for. I've got to be on the set early in the morning. We're very sorry, ma'am, but this is important. Well, what is it? Your telephone number is normally 7258. That's right. And your name's Sally Martin. Yes. What is this all about? There was a woman murdered out in Hollywood last night. We're trying to identify her. We found a slip of paper in her purse with normally 7258 written on it. The only clue we have. You remember giving your telephone number to any young woman recently? Why, no. I, I can't imagine who it would be. A... You know a Mrs. Burns? No. Or a Mrs. Thomas? No. Of course, I've got lots of girlfriends who might have my number, but I don't know anyone by either of those names. We have reasons to believe those names are false, but we must get an identification so we can go ahead with the case. Now, I wonder if you'd come over to the morgue with us and look at the body. When, now? Yes, now. Well, of all... Going to the morgue at 3 o'clock in the morning. It's terribly important, Miss Martin. Oh, very well, then. You wait here until I get some clothes on. Here's the slab. Here. Pull down the sheet, will you, Corsini? Well, Miss Martin? Oh, my... You know her? She was one of my best friends. God, who killed her? That's what we're trying to find out. But you haven't told us yet who she is. Her name's Anne McKnight. Oh, Lord, how, how 
to control yourself. We'd better go in the office for the rest of this, then. Yes, come along, Miss Martin. This way. Now, here, Miss Martin, sit down here. Here's a glass of water, Miss Martin. Thank you. Now, will you please tell us what you know about Anne McKnight? I first met her on the Broadway Melody set. She was a dancer and a bit player. But there haven't been many calls in the past few months, and she got a job in a drugstore at Santa Monica and Western Avenue. Was she married? She had been married and divorced. She was married to a fellow by the name of Burkhart. They didn't get along very well. He, he was awfully jealous. He abused her. What else do you know? That bottle. Well, it's enough to put the bee on our suspect. <laughs> So your name isn't Burns and it isn't Thomas, it's Burkhart. That's quick work, pal. Yes, my name's Burkhart. William Burkhart. And the woman you killed was your former wife, Ann McKnight, isn't that right? Oh, no, that's where you're wrong. You can't pin Ann's murder on me. I didn't do it and you can't prove that I did. Well, if you didn't do it, who did? Well, I'll tell you all about it. Ann and I went out riding yesterday and there was another fellow went with us. What was his name? Charlie Hunter. He used to be a boyfriend of Ann's. Where's he live? I don't know. Well, go ahead. So the three of you went riding. Yeah. And I stopped to get some cigarettes. When I came back, Ann was sick. The other fellow had gone. I took her back to the bungalow. I thought she was sick. I didn't know she was dead until you told me. Oh, come on now, Burkhart. That's a pretty flimsy story. Why, anyone could see the girl had been shot. There was blood all over I her. I tell you, that's the way it happened, and that's what I thought. Yeah? That's my story, and you'll have one swell time proving anything else. But we will prove something else, Burkhart. We'll prove you murdered her, and we'll hang you for it. Having established the identity of the victim and a strong suspicion of the slayer, Corsini and Sanderson begin the complicated job of spinning a noose around Burkhart's head. Their first call is at the office of Dr. A.F. Wagner, Los Angeles County Autopsy Surgeon. Well, Doc, what's the verdict on that girl they brought in from Hollywood last night? Yeah, she'd been shot five times, once over the heart, once on the left side, and three times in the back. I extracted one bullet. The others had gone through the body completely. And that smart guy tried to tell us he thought she was sick. Well, the only sickness that poor girl had was the lead poisoning. Otherwise, she was a perfectly healthy specimen. And you got the bullet you took out of her? Uh, here it is. Thanks. We'll need it. Come on, Corsini. Let's take a look at Burkhart's car. For the love of... Will you look at those blood stains? All over the cushions. Hey, hey, look. Here on the floor are two slugs. They're flat from hitting the metal of the car. And here are two more in the upholstery. This door here. Apparently, he shot her twice, and then as she tried to get out of the car, he emptied the rest of the gun into her back. Yeah, we got to be sure. Come on. We'll take these slugs into Spencer and Marksley and find out if they were fired from the gun the boys took off Burkhardt last night. test shots from the gun you brought in and then compare them with the bullets found in the murder car and in the victim's body. And what did you find? There's no question. All ten bullets were fired from the 38 you took from the suspect. Look, Cassini, you can follow the blood marks from the sidewalk all the way into the bungalow here. 
One trail goes in and another comes out. Yeah, plenty lazy, that guy. He didn't even try to carry her. He just dragged the body. He shot her in the car, dragged her into the house, and then when the neighbors called us, he got scared and dragged her out again. Well, we've reconstructed the crime pretty good. Now we'd better start backtracking on his movements before he murdered her. I saw him park outside the store a little before 4.30. I didn't know who he was until I saw Ann Lee. She gets off at 4.30. And as soon as she walked out of the store, this fellow jumped out of the car and walked over to her. They talked for a few minutes, and I remember thinking what a good-looking date Ann had. Then she got into the car, and this fellow came in and bought two bottles of wine tonic from me, and I thought, oh, boy, I'll bet they're going to have a party. And then he went out and got in the car, and they drove off. Well, Burkhart, are you ready to come clean? What do you mean, Complain? I've told you the truth. You've lied all the way through. We'll prove it. Sure, we'll prove it. And we'll prove that you murdered your ex-wife. Ah, you've got a job on your hands. We're only trying to be honest with you, Burkhart. It's too bad you won't do yourself a favor and come clean oh, with us. Oh, nuts. What do you want me to do, break down and cry? Well, just to show you how honest we want to be with you, I'll tell you everything we know about you. Maybe you'll realize that we're not going to have such a hard time hanging you as you think. Of course, you might get off with life if you cooperate with us. I'll never go to trial. I'm innocent. Yeah? Well, listen to this. On Sunday, you bought a Ford Coupe on South Figueroa Street. You made a down payment of the check for 150 bucks, signed Charles Thomas. Before we begin talking about murder, you might recall that the California Penal Code provides a long rest in San Quentin for passing bad checks. But to go on, you didn't sleep at all Sunday night. Now, it may have been something yet. Or you may have been planning murder. So we let that pass as an uncertain point. You quit your job, drew your pay Monday noon, rented the apartment Monday afternoon. At 4.30, you met your ex-wife when she got off work. You persuaded her to take a ride with you. After buying two bottles of wine tonic, you drove off, arriving at the bungalow quarter at 5.30. Two hours later, you drove to some unknown spot, emptied your gun into your ex-wife's body and returned to the court, where you dragged the body into the house. Then you got scared, so you called in the neighbors. They went for the police, and you completely lost your head. So you dragged her body out of the apartment, down the street where you were found. How am I doing, Blackheart? That's so well. That's the way you dicks reconstruct a crime. No wonder there's so many unsolved cases. You know, Burkhardt, it would give me great pleasure to smack you one right on the puss. Yeah, but you won't. On account of the policeman, your friend. Okay, Corsini, hold on to that Latin temper of yours. Well, how about it, Burkhardt? What's the matter with my story? Plenty. Well, let's hear yours. Ann and I split up in the first place on account of our relatives. We loved each other. She promised me that she'd come back to me if I got a bungalow where we could live alone and if I got an automobile. So I did. On Monday, I met Ann and we started for the bungalow, but we ran into this Charlie Hunter. He rode with us a little ways and then got out. We went to the bungalow and Ann got a little sore at me because I was drinking wine tonic to celebrate us getting together again. But I, I patched that up, and we went out at 7.30, and we ran into this hunter again. Yeah, quite a coincidence. Yeah. Then, uh, like I told you before, I stopped for some cigarettes, and when I came back, Hunter had gone, and Ann was sick. So I took her back to the apartment, and well, I got frightened and called these people next door. You mean you dragged her dead body back to the apartment? Wrong there, copper. You can't prove it. Wait until you see the photographs of those bloody tracks. If Ann was shot... Charlie Hunter shot her. Oh, don't be such an obstinate fool, Burkhardt. 
Every bullet that came out of your wife's body and out of that car was fired from the gun we found on you. You can't prove that. <laughs> We've been hanging men in ballistics testimony for years. You solemnly swear the testimony you're about to give in this court to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Uh, what is your name, please? Joy McKnight Hoskins. You are related to the deceased? She was my sister. Mrs. Hoskins, will you tell the court in your own words what you know about the relations between your late sister and the dependent? Well, Your Honor, they were married less than a year when Anne was forced to divorce him in 1929 because... He was so cruel to her, and because of his intense jealousy, he'd threatened her life if she didn't come back to him. Soon after they were divorced, she had him arrested for making these threats. He was put under a peace bond. But Anne told me often that she'd die before she'd ever live with him again. And that's just what she did. Is there anything else, Mrs. Hoffman? Has the defendant ever said anything to you about his relationship with your sister? Yes. I met him on the street several months ago. He said... If I can't have Anne, nobody else will ever get her. I'll see you there. Thank you, Mrs. Hoskins. Cross-examined. No questions. Very well. That's all, Mrs. Hoskins. Your Honor, at this time I would like to enter as People's Exhibit D this letter written by the defendant to the deceased. It may be admitted. And I would like to read just a paragraph of that letter. The defendant writes, So you have been having a marvelous time with he men, eh? I trust you have enjoyed yourself to the fullest degree. I guess I am not a he man. I am jealous. Remember, I am still your husband. And remember that you repeated out to the minister until death do us part. Now, the word death is written in capital letters and underlined in the exhibit. The letter continues. I myself have formed a firm resolution adhering to that line. Do you understand me? If not, here it is in plain American. Over my dead body only, some other man can have you. I think this document answers the defendant's sneering challenge to find the motive for the crime with which he's charged. If ever there was a clearer threat, I have yet to see it. I object, Your Honor. Counsel's attempting to sway the jury with personal opinion and arguments. Sustained. Strike counsel's remarks following the reading of the exhibit. Counsel will save his arguments for the summary. I beg the court's pardon. But this case is such a brutal, such a horrible example. Will also save his opinions for a closing argument. Proceed. <laughs> The argument of the defense that some other person killed Anne McKnight, or if Burkhardt did do it, he was insane at the time, failed to convince the jury. All testimony having been given, the arguments having been heard, the jury quickly reached a verdict unprecedented in California legal history. Mr. Clerk, please read the verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder and... and and recommend that he shall be hanged. For the information of the jurors, the verdict of first-degree murder carries a mandatory death sentence. It is unnecessary to add a recommendation such as you have done, and indeed it is a usurpation of this court's powers that might be construed as contempt. We just want to be sure wanted the proverbial eye for an eye. The 12 jurors, outraged at the crime of murder, 
wanted it doubly certain that justice would be meted out by the state upon the murderer. So it was done on January 29, 1932, when William Burkhart stepped through the trapdoor at San Quentin to eternity. Thank you, Chief Davis. Ladies and gentlemen, every month a half million people drive into Rio Grande cracked gasoline stations to get their free copy of the Calling All Cars News. We invite you, too, to read this unusual publication full of latest movie news, radio news, and illustrated true detective stories of the crimes you hear solved on these Calling All Cars programs. Even if you are not a regular user of Rio Grande cracked gasoline, you are a listener to this program, and we want you to have a free copy of the news every month. Drive in today or tomorrow. If you aren't in the market for Rio Grande cracked gasoline, you will certainly be interested in the outstanding motor oil value offered by all Rio Grande dealers. In refinery sealed cans, selling as low as 25 cents a quart, you can now get the famous Sinclair motor oil, the same oil that is used by the leading American railroads, by leading airplane lines, because it is de-waxed and de-jellied. All impurities are extracted from Sinclair motor oils to leave a concentrated pure oil that is positively guaranteed not to break down, to give complete lubrication no matter how hot or cold the weather, to protect your engine even when you're going faster than ever before with speedier Rio Grande cracked gasoline. Rick Lindsley bidding you good night for the Rio Grande Oil Company. You know, it's appropriate we're doing police shows this week as um, Willie's led, uh, giving quite a few police officers reason to come to our studio today. Thank you, Willie. Oh, well, uh, a man's got to do what a man's got to do, and sometimes that involves kidnapping and tying up supposed members of supposed you, William, local it is governments. a miracle we are not in the local jail right now. I do not know how you talked them out of arresting all of us. Well, you see, what I did is I actually told them a real great way to make a bit of extra profit on the side. Uh, it all has to do with uh, insurance, policies. insurance policies. See, what you do is you take out an insurance policy on a uh -huh. boat. And then you equip the boat with wheels. Now, boats are covered by nautical law, the law of the uh, oceans, William. which I call Poseidon's William, law. Willie. And once you take Willie. your boat on land, you bring the law of Willie. Poseidon, Willie. God of the ocean. Yeah, yes, what yes, if, I'm sorry. What if, yes. thanks to a previous scheme of yours, we've already legally identified ourselves as boats? I, I hadn't considered that. Actually, a personage who is a boat. Let me consult my, my poorly scribbled together documents and see what this could be, possibly mean. Uh, while, while I research this, let, let's go to the next show. Uh, next up was... I, I was a communist for the FBI? Yes, yes, that is the next show up. Um, great title, probably one of my favorite old-time radio show titles, but, uh, yeah. Um, William, I'm surprised that you don't know what to do in this situation, as you are the one who advised us to legally declare ourselves boats a few weeks back. You'd think that you would know what you were talking about, but it turns out maybe you didn't. What a shock. 
I'm not liable for what the me or maybe not me of the past may have done. And that's also several glasses of uh, book whiskey in the past. Fair point. Uh, you, you really can't hold me liable does for make that it, sort of that's, thing. That's reasonable, actually. All right. I was a communist for the FBI, ladies and gentlemen. I was a communist for the FBI. Starring Dana Andrews in an exciting tale of danger and espionage, I was a communist for the FBI. From the actual records and authentic experiences of Matt Savetic come many of the incidents in this unusual story. Here is our star, Dana Andrews, as Matt Savetic who for nine fantastic years lived as a communist for the FBI. For nine phantasmal years, I was the man who looked into the dark mirror and wondered, which is the reflection and which is me? For nine years, I lived my double life so intensely that sometimes I wondered, which is the real Sovietic? What is reality and what is the dream? It's over now. It all fades back into memory and merciful unreality. It's hard to believe it happened. So fantastic, so stunning were the events and their implications. Sometimes I wonder, is it really over, or is this a lull in the nightmare? In a moment, listen to Dana Andrews as Matt Sabatic, Undercover Man. Andrews as Matt Savetic, Undercover Man. This story from the confidential file is marked 15 Minutes to Murder. I've been out of sorts for weeks, and I know what it is. The steady, grinding burden of intrigue and vigilance and double dealing, and just plain, raw, unvarnished fear are getting me down. I go to a doctor, and he tells me exactly what I want to hear. At last, I have a good, legitimate reason to be excused temporarily from party duty. I make my routine telephone check-in with my chief, Comrade Revchenko, from a pay telephone full of the glad news from my doctor. Nothing right now except continue with your routine duties until further notified. About those routine duties... And be a little more prompt in reporting. Well, I can explain that delay. I've been to my doctor. Why? There's nothing serious. Routine checkup. He did say I ought to take a rest. I see. You wouldn't want me to go haywire in the middle of an assignment, would you? Did he find anything wrong with you? Well, nothing serious, really. Yeah. Well, I could go back and have him pin a stiff cardiac wrap on me. That'll make you any happier. What did the doctor discover? A little high blood pressure, but that's only... Good the... enough. What? Report to headquarters at once. Look, I'm supposed to take it easy Report just for... Report to headquarters. The doctor at said... At once. At once. Sit down, Comrade Savetic. Before we go much further, I ought to point out... Point out nothing until I finish, Comrade. Sorry. I've been doing some work while you were on your way over here. Concerning me? 
I have rearranged matters to provide for you, yes. Provide for me? You need a rest, comrade. I could use one. I have arranged everything. Uh, how do you mean? Arranged what? A private room at Angel of Mercy Hospital. Well, look, I'm not really sick. You need a rest in bed. Well... I had assigned somebody else to this, but your mild hypertensive condition makes you more logical for the job. Oh, it's work then. A rest in bed. That party expense. We expect some return for our generosity, and complete idleness would soon bore you. Good enough. What's the job? Directly across the street from the room I've reserved for you, some 200 feet away, is the back of a row of fashionable apartment houses. Oh, yeah, I know the place. From your bed, you will keep a constant lookout on one of those apartments. Which apartment is marked on this simple diagram? Mm, uh -huh. Twelfth floor. All five windows. Mm-hmm. And you will need this pocket telescope, small enough to keep on your person. Allow nobody to realize that you are watching the apartment. What's the object? Oh, shouldn't I ask? You should very definitely know, comrade. We are out of patience with the FBI. Oh? Tired of their spying, tired of their undercover burrowing into the very core of our party apparatus. It is time we serve notice that this is war and that espionage and war is punishable by extreme measures. Well, then the man I'm watching is an FBI spy? Study every move he makes. He knows he's a marked man. He does not expose himself where we can punish him. That's understandable. Now repeat this number after me. Shoot. Elmwood, 41137. Elmwood, 41137. Again. Elmwood, 41137. Mark nothing down. Of course not. Watch the apartment. Notice Benedict's actions. Well, that's his name then, huh? Benedict? Call it that. Go ahead. Report to Elmwood, 41137 closely. It may take a week or two weeks or a month, but keep at it. What may take that long, exactly? For Benedict to decide it's safe to leave his stronghold, when he does, give our men half an hour's notice. They will do the rest. Check. Informers and contemptible stool pigeons. Time they squirmed. What else? That's it. Everything's prepared for you. All right, I'll pick up a few things and report at the hospital. Benedict. Yes? We will leave for the hospital directly from here. I'll come back here, then. We are leaving from here immediately. But I... Secrecy, comrade Sophetic, secrecy. Absolute and impenetrable secrecy. We will go to the hospital from here in a car I have waiting for us. They are all over, the FBI spies and informers. You seem disturbed, comrade. Uh, it's just this. I'm to be the accessory to a man's murder. An FBI informer? Some vacation. You did not join the party to sip pink lemonade, comrade. In the hospital, you will under no circumstances attempt to contact the party. Do you understand? I understand. It is out of our hands. Whatever occurs must be credited to the ordinary underworld retaliation. Yes. Forget us. Simply call Elmwood 41337. 1137, isn't it? <laughs> Just testing. We will go now. We walk several blocks and hesitate at a corner to be picked up by a nondescript car driven by a man I've never seen before. Silence. All the way to the Angel of Mercy Hospital. Absolute silence. I'm being whisked away to a private hospital room secretly. 
incommunicado. To spy on another FBI undercover man like myself and send him to his death. And I can't even get to a telephone to call my FBI contact and report what's happening. I've got to report to them. I've got to get to the FBI. All I get is to the hospital, though. Revchenko stands by wordlessly while the registrar checks me into my room, 1216. Then he goes, and I'm on my own, isolated, marooned. Can I get you anything, Mr. Svetik? Oh, thank you, nurse. Dr. Anatole will be in to see you soon. Who? Well, your doctor, Dr. Anatole. Fine. He'll be in directly. Okay, he'll be in in a flash. Oh, you're not going to be a bad patient, are you now? Oh, I'm just going to be the sweetest thing ever happened to this little old temple of mercy. You don't have to be cross, do you? I want to be left alone. Just as you say, Mr. Svetik. Absolute minimum of solicitous attention. What are you angry at me for? I'm not angry at you. Oh, I'm sorry, Nurse. I'm not angry at you. I know you're, you're nervous and upset, but... Oh, Nurse. We'll take care of that, though, won't we? Well, just remember, I'm not mad at you. Oh, is the... Telephone connected? Oh, yes. Go right ahead and use it. Dr. Anatole will be right in. The second I'm alone, I take the pocket scope from under my pillow and peer out the window. Across 200 feet of street and a backyard terrace to the rear of those stylish apartment buildings. I pick out Benedict's suite. That's it, all right. A sportsman's apartment. Rifles on racks. Hunting trophies on every wall, cupped in other trophies on a mantelpiece. I reached for the telephone. Communique number one. I feel sick. Your order, please. Elmwood 41137. Thank you. Never mind the opera. Elmwood 41137? Yeah. I'm in. Oh, yeah. You know who's talking, don't you? Keep talking. You may have to move fast. Move fast is what we do best. Stay close to the phone now. I got a permanent poker game right in the room. That's all for now. Check. Now. Your order, please. Evergreen 65542. Thank you. FBI. Somehow, somehow I've got to let them know where I am at least, and what I'm up to, and what one of their boys is in for. Disco, that's my contact's code name. I'm O'Neill. Disco. O'Neill. Disco. O'Neill. Disco. Oh, come on, answer. Get with it, boys. Get on the boat. Hello? Oh, uh, Disco? Disco, please, right away. Driscoll. Driscoll, right away. Hurry. There's nobody by that name here. Yes, there is, I tell you. Who is this? O'Neill. Tell him I'm O'Neill. He'll know. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is Driscoll. Who? Go ahead. How's your mother? Fine. How's yours? I know that voice on the wire isn't Driscoll. Then who is it? I have to reach the FBI. I don't know what I've got on the line got to take a chance. Calculated risk. I've got to stay on the phone. 
If I am talking to the FBI, I've got to talk a gibberish that makes some kind of sense to them and sounds harmless enough to anybody who might be tapping my wire. Maybe this guy who says he's Disco is the wiretap. I don't know. I've got to play it cozy, but I've got to play. Hello? Hello, are you there, O'Neill? You know, uh, I was just thinking, Disco. Yeah? Those mysterious telephone calls your wife's been getting, some crank or something. Yeah? The next time this bum calls, why doesn't she play up to him and have her sister run next door and have the cops trace the call? We had exactly the same idea. That's what we're going to do. Well, have her keep him on the line long enough, though. I know. Well, that way the cops can trace the call and close in on Mr. Mysterious. That sounds very conspiratorial. What? Oh. Hello? Somebody just walked in. I am Dr. Anatole. Who? I think you'd best ring off for now. Oh, I feel all right. Better hang up. Sure. So long, chum. I've got to ring off. Yeah. You should not have a telephone until a staff physician examines you and decides you may have one. I'm all right, doctor. Then why are you here? Oh, just a little hypertension, that's all. You should not have a telephone until I have okayed it. I'm surprised. Now, if you'll cooperate, I shall examine you. to Dana Andrews, starring as Matt Sivetic in I Was a Communist for the FBI and the second act of our story. How much did Dr. Anatole hear? What does he know beside medicine? I'm afraid of that mucilaginous voice and that cold, nothing smile of his. Is he there to watch me? That phone made him pretty mad in his cold-blooded way. Or maybe I'm imagining it. I don't know. In my position, I've got to assume that the walls have ears and that a strange voice that isn't Driscoll's could be a trap. Meanwhile, I've got to study Benedict across the way, find out when he gets up, when he has his meals brought in, how much time he spends on his two telephones. He never goes out. But when he gets up his nerve to try it, he's dead. And I will have killed him indirectly. And it looks close now. Your order, please. Helmwood 41137. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah? Any time now. Oh, it's you. I hate to disturb your poker game. What's the matter? It's you. Never mind. Wise guy. Stand by to go on fast notice. Yeah, I'm all tensed up. I mean it. Listen, what are we kids? We know what to do. All right, then. Are you stupid or something? He's taking stuff off the walls and packing them. That means he's ready to go. When he goes, we'll come. All right, stand by. Check. That's all. I keep watching Benedict. All the signs point to his making a break for it. I think of taking a chance on the pretty nurse, who looks too crisp and fresh to be a comrade. But how does one know? 
Sender with a sealed note to the FBI address? Or no. Write a note and send it through the mails. Maybe special delivery. That's it. Take a chance, that's all. Take a chance that whoever I give the letter to, to mail, is on the level. Everybody can't be a spy. But it only takes one. I'll do it. Oh, nurse! Oh, nurse! Yes, Mrs. Seddick? I might have a letter for you to mail. When do you go off duty? At four o'clock, Mr. Seddick. All right, I'll have it ready for you at, uh... No. What? Never mind. Forget it. Never mind. Well, uh... all right, Mr. Seddick. Just as you say. Too late. I waited too long, hesitating, being scared. Because I can see that Benedict across the street is getting ready to clear out. By the time the nurse got to the FBI headquarters, it'll be all over anyhow. I've got to report to Revchenko's goon squad. I don't want to. I've got to. And then, maybe, figure some way out for Benedict. And for myself, too. Elmwood 411. I've got to. Hello? Your order, please. Elmwood. Hello. Elmwood 41137. Thank you. No. I can't do it. I won't. Good afternoon, Mr. Savetic. Anatole. Or Dr. Anatole. I, I didn't hear you. Perhaps you were... Preoccupied. Miss Christopher says you seemed quite upset a moment ago. Who? who? Your nurse. Upset? Something about changing your mind about some letter? <laughs> oh, that. A small affair of the heart, you know. That's probably for me, Sovetic surgery. Yes. Do you? Thank you. Yes? I had your party for you when you hung up, Mr. Fetty. Well, I, I don't think I... Go I, right ahead, Savetti. Don't mind me. Oh, operator, I don't... Yeah? Want... Hello? Oh, you again. Hold on just a second, will you? Thanks. Will you excuse me, doctor? Oh, of course. I'll come back later. Hello? Now, talk up, sport. Talk up. I can't. Somebody may be listening outside. He's ready to leave. Oh, okay. Give it to me faster. He's wearing a light gray suit with a gray tweed topcoat and a pearl gray snap brim hat. I figure he'll be out any time now, so better to get there early than late. Gray suit, gray tweed topcoat, pearl gray snap brim hat. Check. The entrance to the apartment is on the other side, not facing the hospital. Yeah, check. Have you got enough? Oh, we can't miss. Is that all? That's all. Well, here we go. You're happy about it, aren't you? How long will you be? Fifteen minutes, stops. So long, mister. No time to kill. Yeah. No time to kill. For fifteen minutes to murder. May I, Savetic? Uh, come in. Well, you're having a rather hectic time of it, aren't you? It's going all right. Mm, let's just try your pulse. I'm fine. 
You don't want to excite yourself too much, Savetic. I don't. Can't fool the pulse rate, you know. Well, settle down. Oh, I'm sure of it. In fact, I've signed your discharge. Miss Christopher will be up in a moment with your clothing in effect. I'm discharged? You'll be out of here in ten minutes. Fine. I won't see you again, so... Goodbye. Goodbye, Doctor. I lie in bed trying not to think. Then trying to think of some way out for Benedict across the street. Fascinated, I stare at him across the way. Preparing to clear out and walk right into those Tommy guns. Then I sit up sharply in bed. The man across the way is holding a pair of binoculars to his eyes, looking straight at me, it seems. I know they're binoculars, and I should have known he'd had binoculars when all that other sporting paraphernalia around. And then, all at once, I understand. I know. I'm not watching him. He's watching me. And if he is watching me, then my wire's probably been tapped and they know all about that call to the FBI. They wanted me to try that call. And I bit. I fell for the whole tricky trap to make me show my hand. I'm the dirty stool pigeon, unquote, that Rev Chinko hoped would reveal himself. I'm the patsy. Tag. I'm it. So let it get dead. Because here comes the nurse with my clothes and effects. So I can walk out of here. To be mowed down by gunsels that I've called myself. Oh, beautiful. Here you are, Mrs. Fettich. Your thing. You can be out of here in ten minutes, we hope. Well, what's the rush? How about an hour? Oh, no. Dr. Anatole said ten minutes. Can I have half an hour? I'm afraid not. Why not? Well, there's another patient coming in in ten minutes. All right. Okay. Get out. You can have a wheelchair to the curb if you like. I don't like. Will there be a car waiting for you? Yeah. A big black sedan. Oh, fine. Yeah, fine. Get out. I get dressed. I look across the street. Benedict is gone. I go over to the window and draw the shade. But it doesn't mean anything now. They know I'm coming out and that I'm FBI. I try to think of how I can get out by other exits. Not that it matters. If they don't get me now, they'll get me later. Now would be better for them. It'll be an example of quick, bold vengeance for other informers to notice. I'm dead, all right. But I have one small satisfaction. At least I wasn't putting the finger on a fellow FBI undercover man. And then the door snaps open and the big man who wasn't there is there. O'Neill, Matt. Driscoll. Driscoll it is, Matt. Let's get out of here fast. Where were you? I tried to call you at the FBI, but some strange voice answered. I know. You know? Yeah, I instructed him to accept calls for Driscoll from O'Neill. Well, I took a chance and talked some jabberwocky at him, hoping he'd catch on and trace the call back here to the hospital. Yeah, smart boy, Matt, and we're smart little fellas, too. Because that's how I knew you were in this room. Where have you been all the time? Two rooms down the corridor, watching that commie across the street. You, too? They told me he was an FBI agent they wanted to knock off. I thought I was killing our own man. You almost did. What? I'm the guy. But it's me they're after. They're going to mow me down in the street. They've been watching me, testing me. I'm dead. Look, I was watching him first, getting a line on the people who visit him. They caught on after two days and set him to watch me. But they had to get the information about me from you. How do you know that? Well, look at me. Remember the clothes that gent across the street was wearing? Gray suit, gray tweed top coat, pearl gray hat, right? Yeah. Well, he was watching me and mimicking whatever significant things I did for you to see in report. 
By reporting on him, you were reporting on me. Sort of a carom shot. They're after me, Matt, not you. They trust you completely as of this assignment, or they wouldn't have let you act for them. Now, look, you leave first, and I'll follow in five minutes. Watch out for that Dr. Anatole, though. Anatole? He's one of us. Oh, brother. Have I got a headache? Get going. Then what about the killer car? It's on the way. Nah, it'll never get here. As soon as we found out where you were, thanks to your call, we put a tap on your phone. We've had Elmwood 41137 staked out for two days. Oh, then you've picked up those guntles. Ten minutes ago, with all kinds of raps against them. They've all got records we can put them away for. Quite a haul, huh, man? Yeah. And you're in the clear. The Reds will blame me for everything. Nice haul. Terrific. Vacation in bed. Ha! <laughs> When I get downstairs, sure enough, no black sedan bristling with Tommy guns. My head is still whirling, and it isn't blood pressure. It's pressure, all right, but not blood pressure. I shake my head to a taxi driver at the curb. Walk it off, Semitic. Walk it off. Rest cure. Oh, sure. I ought to be resigned to the pressure by now. Resigned? Maybe. But there's no rest, and there's no peace. Just resignation to being marooned among enemies, forbidden from acknowledging my friends. I'm a communist for the FBI. I walk alone. Dana Andrews will return in just a moment. This is Dana Andrews. I can drop my role of Matt Savetic after each show, but there's a real Matt Savetic from whose fantastic adventures these stories all stem. The story you've just heard happened in all its basic details. The constant, silent warfare between the FBI and the Communist Party never ceases. This story told one small phase of that bitter fight. Names, places, and incidents have been disguised naturally, but the spirit of fact remains untouched. Next week, another exciting adventure from the journal of Matt Savetic, who worked undercover for the FBI. It's a landmark in your listening, so mark it. See you then. Well, that was I Was a Communist for the FBI, and thank you so much, Willie, for taking the time out of your, I'm assuming, very uh, McClain, Willie's, very busy. McClain, Willie, Willie left the room. Willie's out in the hallway. Uh, did you lock the door? 
Uh, you, you know, I probably should have. He's talking to somebody. I'm not sure what's going on out there. Oh, here he comes. Oh, he probably kidnapped someone else. Oh, well, that was a struggle. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it, but that janitor that works this building thinks that Tom Hanks, uh, actor Tom Hanks, is still alive. <laughs> Boy, I had to set him straight. Jeez. <laughs> Sorry, where were we now? I'm telling you, Tom and I have barbecues together on the weekends, you philistine. Oh, yeah, oh yeah. shut your yap. That that that's just that's just Sydney. Don't mind him. He's touchy. Willie, I was I was just saying how much I appreciate you taking so much time to host the show, and I was wondering if, if also maybe you could leave and never come back. I did. I was wondering. I just it's been nagging me. Why did you want to host this show so badly, William? Well, uh, my desire was to uh, uh, provide this hosting work in exchange for either chicken feed or uh, services rendered. Do you have a great need for chicken feed? Well, actually, what I do is I, I, I trade the chicken feed in exchange for bear mace. Bear mace? Bear mace. Is there a big need for bear mace? Yes. See, bears have been nesting pretty regularly out in my barn, and I use the bear mace in order to chair them, chase them things off. You have bear nests? I do indeed, and there's nests of bears Forgive in it. Forgive me, William. It's not that I don't believe you. It's just I've never heard of bears nesting. <laughs> You've never heard of a bear nest before? Oh, it's, no, it's quite a significant sight. Well, the, you know how birds make a nest. I'm aware of that. Yes, I've yeah. Like birds. Well, bears have nests. Okay. They go around gathering sticks and building. Of nests. course, in a rather violent and bear-like fashion. Yes. Ah, okay. All right. So by coating oneself in bear mace, you're able to chase them away. Now it does burn like the Dickens, I'll tell you. Well, is there something you could you could go do and maybe not be here? Well, I was rather hoping to secure your uh, your volunteer services. I'd rather not spray myself down in bear mace yet again. The the burden sensation is quite painful, uh, especially when I later have to make trips to the restroom for all the book whiskey Willie. that I drink and then has to exit my. Willie, system. I think it's gonna be a hard it's gonna be a hard sell trying to. Get us to coat ourselves in bear mace. I'll be honest. Well, I could always wait until your back is turned. But no, I I wouldn't do something like that without y'all's consent. All right. Willie, I know what I ain't. Hold on, Willie. Willie, on Willie. But I'll be back again question, someday. How do you define consent? Well, you see, consent actually doesn't have a very clear legal definition. Now, when I say legal definition, I'm talking about the law of the ocean. McLean, uh, can you talk to the janitor about changing the locks? Yeah, I'll get. I'm gonna get right on that. Actually, Ch- change the lock. Hey, hey, why? Why are you pushing me? Just well, you just, don't need you know, to, put, to just, push me. You might, you've ever well, heard I, of overstaying? You're welcome a bit. I'm just trying to help you be a good guest. You know. But 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 I've only been here for a couple hours. Uh, three weeks, Willie. You were sleeping in the closet for three weeks. Well, at least let me get the other city councilman I hid under the bed. Come on. Go back to your barn with your bear nest. But I'm all out of bear base. McLean, toss the man some chicken feed and let's go. Thanks for listening to Yesterday Today, folks. Jake Westbrook, McLean Westbrook, Slick Willie. Um, yeah. Disneyland isn't real. It's not real. It's a hoax. I got proof. I got proof. Hey.